0: My name's Claire Clark, I'm one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're talking to Merlin Chauquinyun, who is the Donald H. Gemson Assistant Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. And he is also the author of All Health Politics is Local, Community Battles for Medical Care and Environmental Health, which just came out this summer with the University of North Carolina Press. Um, and we are excited to have him on the show. Dr. Chow Yun, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you, Dr. Clark. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Uh,
0: I wonder if you could get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, I mean, like education self and stuff like that. Like yeah, education you...
0: self, yeah.
1: Yeah so I I always like hearing about that like trajectories of scholars not just historians but how how they got to places and I think mine was pretty random and serendipitous so I definitely did not want to be a historian <laughs> at the outset of college and really had no notion that this was um a legit line of work that one could pursue so it sort of happened by a series of accidents but um I would say the the first light bulb was uh, I I took a class with Eric Foner at Columbia on the history of radicalism in the United States. Um, I was sort of involved in social movements and activism myself in college, and so wanted just kind of a historical perspective on it. And this was a a class I took in freshman year, and so it made a big impression on me because I mean, one, it was just a, a very lively class. It was interpretive. It was not just a bunch of names and dates. Um, and he was a spellbinding lecturer. Um, so I think that that got me curious about history. Um, and then I took a class on archival research with uh, Betsy Blackmar, who is, uh, some of your audience members may know, written a lot of, uh, it, they can only be described as muscular histories of Central Park and Um, early American Manhattan, just like the sheer amount of archival research. So she's the one who really kind of taught me how to go through 100 boxes or something and try to get some kind of narrative out of it. Uh, But I think the most important person I took a class with was Sam Roberts, um, who is a very distinguished historian of of public health and wrote a very important book on the Jim Crow South um, and TB um, in Baltimore. And he taught this class called History of African-American Public Health Movements. And if the class had one argument, it was essentially that um, you can't tell the story of public health without um, realizing that public health is both a kind of institutional project to be admired in many ways, but also an institutional project that had an underside to it and that marginalized a lot of people and didn't work um, for some populations and not others. Um, Dr. Roberts would always kind of remind us that one of the high points in traditional public health history narratives was the the progressive era, Uh, this is also the high point for eugenics. So, um, so there's Mm -hmm. a great class that kind of explored that contradiction. So, so Roberts was the guy who really kind of, kind of got me hooked on not just history, but um, the history of public health and knowing what it was, and then um, racial inequality within uh, public health. Um, He had me read this book, called Origins of the Urban Crisis, which was about Detroit and its um, economic decline in the 1940s and 1950s, and how that was bound up with deindustrialization and uh, and racism, and it was by a guy named Tom Seguru, who um, at that time was a history professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And so I read that book, and there's a particular article that came out of that book called Crab Grassroots Politics, which was about suburban racism and homeowner associations that tried to repel, sometimes uh, violently, uh, Black homebuyers. And it was a horrifying. Um, but also a marvel of historical research, just going through these like homeowner association papers and local newspapers and things like that to document this. So, so I was like, I really, I really got to study with this guy. So I went to University of Pennsylvania with the express intention of studying with uh, Tom Segru and another historian who unfortunately passed away a few years ago from cancer, uh, Michael Katz. Um, and Katz mm-hmm. kind of took a sort of similar approach to social welfare um as as roberts did that this is you know pub forms of public assistance have obviously been very uh, helpful to millions of people but they also have a punitive underside uh, to them they assume a lot about the behaviors of 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 poor people um he had a book that i that made a big impression on me also in undergrad called the undeserving poor which was about where where does this notion that the that there are some poor people who deserve assistance and that there are others who should be shunned where does that come from and so uh, Katz was a big influence on me too and i I wanted to go uh, study with him and then um at at at, at grad school, there were three other scholars who I think were pretty big for me. Um, David Barnes, um, was a historian of public health of France and kind of taught me to interrogate again, sort of like Roberts did, what is, what are public health's fundamental roots? And turns out they were a little unsavory, right? A lot of, uh, uh especially if you look at, uh, England and, and France, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, very bound up with kind of Victorian era um, ways of regulating uh, uh, poor people so he uh, Barnes taught me a lot about myth busting and then the two others were Adolf Reed who I can talk a little bit about more uh, later but really just changed um, how I thought about race and its relationship to capitalist structures and uh, he and I have worked closely on a number of things since and then um I think everybody should have I mean sometimes graduate students will ask for advice and stuff and I always recommend having just a rando on your committee who does like absolutely nothing that is remotely related to what you do but just like reads stuff and says smart things and can have you read smart books to help you improve your uh, writing or argumentative skills, and and that rando for me was Steve Han, uh, who is a 19th century uh, historian, um, and wrote a book about uh, the origins of, uh, of about yeoman farmery, which yeoman farmers, which uh, was kind of like a precursor to understanding populism, um, and and then wrote a book on I I would guess I I guess I would characterize as kind of like what is the social history of of black nationalism and so uh um but he taught me so many different things even though you know we did a readings course on on the history of capitalism and transitions to capitalism from feudalism and i used none of this stuff in my in, in, in in dissertation or or the book uh but uh it still taught me a lot how to think so so those are my my folks yeah
0: that's an amazing group of mentors.
1: Um, yeah. Kind of by accident. You... Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's fantastic lineup though. Yeah. Um, how, how did you come to write all health politics is local? Was this your dissertation? This was my
1: dissertation, but it had kind of a, a lot of bumps and detours. Um, so I, I came in thinking I wanted to write a dissertation on health activism in the 1960s and 70s. And there is a lot of health activism in this book, but in a very different form than that project that I originally thought of might have taken. Um, so that project, I was really interested in a, in a group of about two dozen activists and certain um, health activist groups, like very specific groups, uh, particularly medical student activists in the 60s and 70s. But I ended up not doing that for the dissertation for a couple of reasons. One was, I mean, this is probably a foolish thing I did, but uh, I went directly from undergrad to grad school. So I was like 22. And I did not think that I was politically mature enough to be writing about health activism and these kind of heady debates and interpersonal conflicts and things like that. So there's part of me that just didn't feel prepared to write about that stuff. Uh, But I was also learning kind of new things, um, um, ways you could work with quantitative data, ways you could think more about the policy aspects to um, um, public health. Um, So I wanted to kind of apply that stuff. And And so gradually, I think my dissertation shifted so that I didn't forget about health activism entirely, but I was also very interested in the broad policy structures that um, constrained activism at times, uh, in which all activism was embedded. And I really started to develop an interest too in. In, in what you might call backyards, um, the actual locales, immediate environs where people lived um, and how they experienced public health. And so I think that's where I got the idea to do a, um, a book that I, I hope has a feeling of national sweep, but that is ultimately grounded, not in national level stuff, but local stuff. So yeah, it was kind of like, you know, I thought, I think a lot of people enter grad school with an idea of what they want to do, and then they learn more stuff and, <laughs> and switch course. So I think sure. that's what happened. I
0: wonder, yeah. um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the title. So the title comes from the adage that was popularized by former Democratic Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, that all politics is local. And your variation on that is all health politics is local. And um, this is kind of this kind of becomes the analytic framework um, for the for the book. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I, I ripped off uh, the late uh, uh, Tip O'Neill shamelessly and basically just inserted the adjective "health" in front of his uh, his very famous uh, quip. And you know what he meant by that was that there are these big national swings in national politics. But really, if you want to understand them, whether it's civil rights or uh, changes in in attitudes on 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 women or right-wing backlash you can't just look at what's going on in uh at the national level in dc politics you have to look at a place like orange county where a lot of this stuff bubbles up or or something like that so um so i always thought that was a good framework for um understanding public health but i didn't it wasn't quite crystallized and it took me a long time to get there so i I, this was a dissertation, and then I didn't look at the dissertation for like two or three years. I was burnt out. I just, you know, like the thought of looking at that thing again um, was for a couple years was um, something that made me very fearful and intimidated. So I just didn't do, I just didn't touch it for like two or three years and was working on other stuff at this postdoc I had. But I, I think. Um, I was struggling. I had a lot of material for the dissertation, but I didn't have the right frame for it. So the original frame was not localism. Um, That's not what the, orig- the dissertation was framed at. It was about the division between medical care and everything that is not medical care. So um, So some people may know this in the audience, some people may not, but there's this um, perennial debate in public health about how much medical care actually matters to improving um, public health. And I think the general consensus is it matters way less than uh, we think that. even if everybody in the country had great medical care, we would still have a lot of public health problems for a host of reasons outside of medical care access and the medical care system. So I want to do something with that. And that was originally how the dissertation was framed. It was about Um, Here are some cases that are about medical care, and then here are some cases that are not about medical care, environmental health cases. But it seemed kind of too esoteric a framing. I think people in public health would get it, but I think people outside it outside of it wouldn't so i i said no nah, that's not the right framework it doesn't come as intuitively to as many people as as i was like as as i would like um so again i kind of went to the dissertation struggled with the framework and then got scared and uh put it away for like six months i kept doing this kept kicking the can down the road At some point i had to actually write the thing so i came back to it and um i have a writing spot i don't know uh Dr. Clark, if you have like a writing spot where you go away to, like um here in the northeast, oh, I wish I did. I
0: wish yeah, I did.
1: Here in the northeast, everybody likes to go to the forest, uh like like, and I don't. I'm not a forest guy. I don't like ticks and stuff. So I said, I'm not going to a forest. But I definitely needed to isolate, you know. And so my my. My sweet isolation spot is Miami, Florida, and particularly South Beach. So I went to South Beach and I locked myself up for like a week. And I said, we are going to figure out this framework and we are not leaving South Beach uh, until we do, which might have been a mistake because it's it's a strong incentive to stay in a glorious South Beach. But I went to South Beach and thought about that, kind of read the dissertation again. And then at the same time, I, I brought some kind of political history books with me. And there was this volume that was edited um, a number of years ago now by Julian Zelizer, uh, Meg Jacobs, and I think Bill Novak. And it had actually a Tom Segrue essay in it. And the Tom Segrue essay, like uh, Tip O'Neill's, was, a quip was called All Hell, All Politics is Local. And And in that essay, uh, Segrue talks about how even with the growth of of the federal state and the federal government, um, local impulses are still important. And so there was kind of this sudden light bulb in my head. I said, that is what you are writing about. Like fundamentally, you chose to do local studies. You chose to do local studies because you thought um, studies that were too centered on the national level and particularly national quantitative data sort of missed the thicket. Of what goes on at the micro level on the ground, and local strategies are also what all of your actors in this in this tale are, uh, uh, ultimately get behind. You know these kind of local grassroots, um, bottom up strategies. That is the framework for your book. So. So Tip O'Neill bailed me out and Sabru bailed me out. Uh, and that was uh, how I kind of came to, to use that framework. Yeah. But it was, it was kind of a weird thing. it's like, you know, the text of the book is probably like 70% the same as the dissertation, but that 30%, you know, made the, made the difference, the wrapping. And sometimes it's the wrapping that I think um, people get stuck with in the Revision. I don't know if you had that experience. With, yeah, when you're, yeah, no, right? I, 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 I,
0: um, my, um, well, we won't. We're not here to talk about my, my dissertation first book, but, um, but, uh, I definitely, um, think it, it it works. And you say you say in the book you, you you say that most of our synthetic accounts of health politics are at the national level. And when I think about the books that are out there about public health, I think that's right. I think, you know, this does fill a gap um, that exists. And um, I'm curious um, how you chose... So you look at health activism in New York, Los Angeles, Cleveland, Ohio, and Central Appalachia, and your time period is from the 1960s to the 1980s. Um, Why... How, how did you come to research these places and this time period?
1: No, Great question. Um, so there's both intellectual reasons and then uh, fake reasons, or no, there's intellectual reasons that are somewhat fake and somewhat real. And then there are real reasons. And uh, very few historians, I think, cop to the real reason, but I'm going to. So uh, New York was close to Philadelphia, where I was uh, doing my dissertation and, and, or it was going to grad school. So oh, I could count on friends to, uh, who, who would let me sleep over while I was doing archival research in New York. Um, I'm from Los Angeles and my mother, uh, still lives there. So I could stay at her house. So boom, already you got uh, free lodging at two places. Uh, so that's, that's the kind of non-intellectual reason. The, the real serious, more serious reason was, um, I was very interested just in the war on poverty in general um, as a period, the war on poverty in great society is a period of substantial federal government growth, but also a period and a set of programs that I think don't quite get the regard and the respect both among the general public and historians that they deserve. So there's all this... You know, literature on the New Deal and then uh, literature that more recently has pointed to the um, more unsavory aspects of the New Deal, how some aspects of the New Deal may have simultaneously created a new social safety net while also creating racial inequality and marginalization. And I've always thought it kind of curious that people don't look to the Great Society and the War on Poverty as a foil to that, because the War on Poverty and Great Society, as flawed as many of the endeavors within them were, were much more inclusive than <laughs> than the New deal. Um, a lot of that new deal baggage that uh, I think has been explored in the both the public sphere and by scholars um, is actually addressed in some ways by by the war on poverty and great society. and I think if you're looking for an example of an ambitious uh, federal government program set of programs, um, this is where you might look. but um, so I, I I was kind of very interested in just the history of, of this period and um, noticed that the War on Poverty, and particularly a federal agency that was essentially created to administer the War on Poverty called the Office of Economic Opportunity, or OEO, so OEO without the letter uh, R, OEO, um, I, I noticed that they funded a lot of health programs and particularly uh, what we now call community health centers. So these are low cost, sometimes free uh, places where you can at least get primary care. And usually they had kind of some interesting social service functions as well. And um, I noticed that the first ones were all open in the four regions that I, I chose. Los Angeles, uh, one of the first ones was in New York. Cleveland had one, uh Central Appalachia had one in eastern Kentucky. So so that was kind of the threat was you follow OEO and follow OEO to places that have good archives. So these were and and places you can live for free at least some of the time. So which was LA and New York. Um the ecological story, the environmental health story was a little trickier. Um but uh so Los Angeles just growing up, I, I knew um is a place with a very troubled past when it comes to ecology then and now, so I knew there was probably a story there, and there was um and then central appalachia I picked um largely because at the time um there was a lot of this was like i don't know two thousand ten or so there was a lot of um scientific literature appearing on on coal mining and particularly this process called mountaintop removal, where you essentially explode part of the mountain to get to the coal seam. And it's pretty devastating process just for ecology, but also for human health. And I wanted to know the history of that. And so that kind of made central Appalachia a potential prospect for, um, an, an, another environmental health story. And that's how I picked that. So, um, so there are you know, it, it, you didn't. I didn't want to just pick a basket of random places. I was looking for kind of some threads. Um, and so OEO was a thread for the medical care side, and then uh, for the environmental health side. Eventually, I was looking for a strong, a strong comparison um, and divergence in success. And so LA in the book was a success story um, um, in terms of controlling. Uh, environmental health problems of the time and Central Appalachia was not so there was kind of a nice foil there and a nice uh, entry point to a comparative analysis.
0: Great yeah I um, instead of ins- I, my instead of going sort of location by location, um, my questions the rest of my questions are all going to focus on different tensions that the book covers sort of the different the various different battles that are in your subtitle. Um, so, so I'll, I'll ask you to, to kind of talk about more than one of these cases at once, I guess, um, instead of going in order through each of the towns, which I, or each, each of the locations, which I think would be kind of boring. So, um, I'm going to ask some bigger picture
1: questions. Okay.
0: Um, So in in each of the locations, New York, L.A., Cleveland, Central Appalachia, there is a tension between the community and the medical institutions that are supposed to serve it. So in New York, there's a problem of the sustainability of public hospitals. And in Los Angeles, there's a problem of medical maldistribution, so a lack of health services in the predominantly black Watts neighborhood. In Cleveland, there's a problem of access, and that is that the renowned Cleveland Clinic exists amid a blighted and racially segregated neighborhood. And then in Appalachia, there's a problem of mismanagement of government funds that are intended for the improvement of local health services. Can you talk about what each of these stories have in common in terms of the tension, the tensions between the community and then the medical institutions?
1: yeah no, that's a terrific question. Um, I think there's like maybe two or three kind of common points, even though you know, because one of the arguments of the book is that um, you have to go local to see local variation and how local idiosyncrasies um, impact. Uh, what are common health problems in a very in in very different ways um, so there's a lot of difference among these um four places that are due to um, local characteristics unique characteristics but there all are all are there are also some some commonalities so i, I think two or three of them are um, the first is just like an extraordinary faith in local imperatives and changing things um at that level. Um so in the case of Cleveland, um it's not the the problem wasn't that there was no health care in Cleveland. Cleveland then and now is actually um famous for having a lot of innovative uh healthcare infrastructure, but the problem is a lot of that healthcare infrastructure is only open to people uh with with deep pockets. And so the idea was to um Open healthcare up and uh, and extend it to places that had previously been denied it. As as you mentioned in um, the Los Angeles South Central Watts example, it's it's somewhat different. It's built where it never existed. But the common thing thread in all of this is to is to do stuff. At, at a very local level, particularly in the form of new facilities or changing the facilities that existed. it So it's it's kind of this faith, this local imperative, this local thrust. Um, that's one commonality that threads it. And it's it's and it's also uh, uh, projects that that involve local people, um, um, so this is not a; these are not endeavors where uh, some functionary from a Washington D.C. agency is called in from from outside. Um, there's uh, particularly in the Los Angeles and Central Appalachia case. There's um, a lot of faith that people who live in the neighborhoods and need these services are also people who are um, going to be a critical part of, of building them. And, and I guess that gets to the second uh, commonality, which is. Um, an extraordinary faith. Um, much of it validated subsequently, much of it, I think, uh, a little bit of it, uh, misplaced, um, but a huge faith in, in community participation. That is the notion that, um, people shouldn't just be, uh, receiver, passive receivers of services that, um, Medical doctors and other wonky experts make for them. They should have an active part in in shaping the nature of those services and shaping the administration of the of the institutions that they rely upon. Um, and this is something that's kind of in the air, just in broader American society in the 1960s and, and 1970s. So it's a very famous phrase that was made popular by the group Students for a Democratic Society participatory democracy so this is you know the notion that uh there are lots of powerful institutions that we all have to uh that we are all reliant upon in in our day-to-day lives and they are very the actual inputs that we have on how they run and how they serve us um are actually foreclosed uh and these are insular and and so the notion of participatory democracy is yeah, people should have a say in the kinds of institutions that shape their lives. They shouldn't just, again, be passive receivers of of those institutions' actions. So, I think community participation was is the second thread running through this, and and it actually becomes part of government policy. So, the organ, the agency, the War on Poverty agency that I uh, mentioned earlier, the Office of Economic Opportunity, in the law, in the federal law that created that agency, um. It, it, it said that uh, any any local project getting money from this uh, new allocation needed to have uh, community boards that were composed of non-professional lay people. Um, and, and the board would sort of serve as a community check to the usual kinds of experts uh, who, who ran things. So I think the second is participation. And then third is more in the form of a problem. I think all of these local endeavors particularly in medical care sector that i uh that i examine are always uh dealing wrestling with um the problem of scale so you have one great project in one neighborhood but ultimately, that's just one project in one neighborhood. And even that one neighborhood project can't serve everybody in that uh, neighborhood. So how do you actually expand this? So it's not just this one isolated node that's a success where even though the rest of the system is deficient. And I don't think they quite solve that problem. And I think many local endeavors today are dealing with the scale problem. So there are lots of a lot of your listeners may know of uh NG community level NGOs who do amazing work. But um, you know, they do amazing work that may improve the lives of five thousand people when there are actually 500,000 people in a city that need their lives improved. So I think the problem of scale and both the the beauty and potential, but also the huge limits and constrictions of localism, that's a third, third theme. So they all kind of are rooted in the, as you, as you pointed out, the analytic frame of the book. Um, they're locally driven and there's extraordinary faith in kind of bottom up community driven projects, um, there's a lot of faith in um in 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 lay people actually having real administrative control to an extent uh, in these projects, partic- community participation, um, and then there's this um, per- per- persistent problem that's lurking in the background, which is how you're actually going to scale this up. So it's just not this, you know, one local victory here, another local victory there. Yeah.
0: I think it's worth pointing out to our listeners that you actually do a wonderful job of capturing the perspective of the communities that you talk about. So you, you got all access to the OEO records and to the medical institutional records, but then throughout the book, you find other voice, you find the, the community, the voices, um, of the folks on the ground who are sort of doing the work, um, and it's uh, um, really sort of um, flesh the art, like you, you, f- you find others, you, you go beyond just what's available in the archive to, so that you're able to capture these, these local community perspectives.
1: Yeah. And here I got to thank, and, and this is kind of a thing that became apparent to me, um, both in writing this book and, and researching kind of community health topics is that, um, you know, as you say, uh, uh, a lot of there's a lot of stuff you can find out about the bureaucracy and the government agency aspect of it in your traditional archives that are held in libraries, academic institutions, the national archives, and things like that. But those are often missing, as you say, um, voices of actual people who experienced and lived through these programs. and 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 um, the key for me was actually going old school and picking up the telephone and identifying some of these people and calling. Them and uh, I found one thing that people really are happy to do is actually just give you their old crap that's been accumulating for like decades. So, you know, there's one story. So, I spend a lot of time um, talking about this, uh, just one example this um, Lower East Side, New York. Um, um community health center that's still around today actually called Gouverneur um, Lower East Side serves Chinatown and the broader Lower East Side uh, area and um, I knew kind of casually somebody who had worked there in the 1960s as as one of the first community organizers um, for the for the new community board that had formed there and you know her job was to actually go out into um, the the neighborhood, and tell people about this um this new institution, but also find out what some of their needs were. So I I knew about her. Her name is Terry Mizrahi. and um and so I contacted her, and she said, "Yeah, you know, I have a closet full of stuff from my time at Gouverneur, and it was just like these newsletters that were impossible that you know you couldn't find anywhere. Uh, they're just like." Uh, pay- newsletters with voices of patients um little kind of memoranda that uh she wrote to herself uh uh back and forth letters um between her and some of the other employees and and that gave you the ordin- the the sense of 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 the ordinary people who use this facility much more than um your traditional government documents but it all came from just asking um terry hey can i can i borrow this stuff and uh she said yes so i encourage anybody listening to not be not be afraid to pick up the phone or email people who uh whose names you stumble across uh, because they might they might just have a a bunch of stuff that that can help you get those voices for sure yeah
0: what a a gold mine that's amazing yeah 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 Um, um Two, of the battle, t- two more questions about sort of common themes in the book. Um, two of the battles discuss- discussed in the book are over environmental health. So um, there's the story of smog in Los Angeles and then the story of, as you mentioned, strip mining in Appalachia. Um, he, tell us a little bit about those battles. Why did the campaign against smog in L.A. succeed while the campaign against strip, mi- strip mining in Appalachia failed?
1: Yeah, no, uh, a great question. So, I mean, the Los Angeles story turned out really differently than what um, I had expected. Um, so I one of my favorite books is this polemic by Mike Davis, uh, Ecology of Fear, about my hometown of Los Angeles. Basically, says, like, Los Angeles has all the preconditions for, like, ecological catastrophe. And in some ways, he has been proven right by the periodic fires and... Uh, and, and that have occurred in in los Angeles in the past decade and so forth so i thought i was going to kind of do like uh, i would do ecology of fear but uh with a little more archival depth perhaps um and and i thought there would be a, like more of an environmental justice story here because uh los angeles then and to a certain extent now still has a fair amount of oil drilling um, that is proximate to a vulnerable uh, low-income minority um Neighborhood, So I thought it would be an environmental justice story when I went back to the 1940s and 1950s. That story is kind of there, but it is really not the main event. The main event, and it just kind of hits you in the face when you look at the archival documents, is what you said. It is the pervasiveness of smog and smog attacks in the 1940s and 1950s in Los Angeles, but also the triumph of a very aggressive air pollution program that markedly turned around the situation, not entirely as anybody who grew up in Los Angeles knows, but substantially um, within about 20 years. And so that was the puzzle is how does smog go from being a and it's you know like i said i grew up in los angeles like everybody takes pot shots at los angeles for being smoggy and polluted and we certainly have those days but it is nothing compared to what it was in the 1940s and 1950s um there are accounts of people who you know they step outside of their houses and involuntarily they just start crying immediately because something is getting in their eyes and triggering um, that response, or all kinds of uh, you know, nasal problems, sinus problems. Um, there are smog blankets in the city where the entire ta- uh, where where Los Angeles just goes dark for a day. <laughs> you know, so just, that doesn't happen now. So it's like, so it's like, how did this how did this happen? And um, so so that's how I I wanted that was the puzzle why I wanted to study Los Angeles. Why why was this so successful? It's not a place. You know, you you think, you know, given what you know about Los Angeles politics, 1940s, 1950s, not necessarily a progressive town. So why 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 this happened? And the Central Appalachia story was kind of the opposite. So I knew already in some ways that attempts to mitigate. The ravages of mining, and particularly a technique called strip mining, surface mining. So this is when huge tractors and bulldozers, bulldozers, um, come and uh, deforest land, and then, um, very forcefully using mechanized uh, methods, uh, dig up um, until you can find a coal seam. I already knew in some ways that. It was not the attempts to control this were not successful because strip mine surface mining has been going on um, in at, at, until recently at a very rapid pace. And as I mentioned, it's sort of evolution um, evolutionary endpoint is this brutal mountaintop removing um, technique. And so I want to know why. Why, in one place, you have very successful environmental health mitigation and in others you don't and it's full speed ahead on ecological destruction to to get coal and um what i ended up coming to was uh i think two reasons um and they might be instructive too for climate change politics i've been thinking a lot about that but um in los angeles you essentially have a coalition of odd political bedfellows that nonetheless unite around combating smog. Um, And so one critical part of this is the most obvious is these are just kind of neighborhood level local environmental activists who um, send crabby letters to constituents. They form ad hoc organizations saying something has got to be done about smog. But it's not just them. They sort of lock arms with um, a group, a subset of the Los Angeles elite, the Los Angeles County Medical Association, which in other contexts is a completely reactionary right wing association, really gets behind the the smog battle because all these physicians who are members of it see their patients coming in with smog related uh, illness. And uh, but I think the real the most important um, um, actor in the coalition is kind of the recreation and tourism industry because if Los Angeles in 1940s 1950s marketing itself as you know sunshine city beautiful utopian coastal place to shoot movies to go on vacation and there are smog blankets like it kind of undermines the whole marketing thing. So, uh, so so the recreation industry also played a big role in pushing for for smog and i think they essentially i argue they essentially back the industrialists which are oil and gas companies and the steel industry into a corner and they capitulate um, and say okay we'll go along we'll try our best to go along with with this smog mitigation and it's essentially an intercapitalist competition and I've always just thought as just a political strategy, if you can exploit divisions between capitalists, that can often be uh, one of the major, uh, a major turning point in, in any kind of endeavor. And I think you see this again with this, with this climate bill, because there are lots of um, industrial, there are lots of, there are lots of, you know, for-profit big companies that um are putting a lot of money behind uh, renewable energy, whether it's for kind of a social justice, social responsibility reason, or just because they want to cut their own uh, kind of energy costs. And that has been, I think, a critical part in advancing this new bill. As important as climate activists are an environmental activists. Um, this new bill actually has a substantial amount of of corporate support uh, as well. and that's what happened in Los Angeles too. The non- industrialists um, kind of got behind it. Um, I think the other reason was kind of an an, an ideological reason so I, I I come up with this term uh, that I I, I I call the industrial ecological accord. So this is the unspoken rule that you may pass very aggressive air pollution measures. They may really annoy the industrialists, but you're not going to fundamentally pump the brakes on growth and particularly huge economic growth in a city like Los Angeles, which was a boom town in the 40s and 50s. You're going to really just kind of sand the edges off of it. So you'll... You'll say that one, um, I don't know, a steel foundry can't emit a certain amount, but you're not going to actually stop the number of steel foundries that um, might be built. You're not going to stop highways, even though you might push auto companies to limit the kind of emissions that come out of a single vehicle. So the Industrial Ecological Accord is this kind of um, agreement uh, from industrialists that they'll try their best to... uh, limit emissions and adhere to rules but the fundamental growth imperative is not going to end and so I think that's one reason they also sort of agreed to, to get on board the foil is Central Appalachia there's no kind of coalition like this central App- Kentucky as you know has a lot of energy interests uh, that 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 uh, still play a disturbingly large role in in government. Um, it's uh, it is a state that is very dependent on those energy companies so whereas Los Angeles had a lot of economic diversification uh, Kentucky had much less of that especially in the time period that I talked about which is kind of 60s, 70s um, early or early 1980s. so you don't have these intercapitalist capitalist competition, in and of capitalist tensions that you can exploit you don't have the environmentalists don't have these powerful allies like the los angeles county medical association or a huge uh, recreation hollywood type uh, industry that they can um form alliances with so because you don't have the alliances it's basically like the environmental health activists by themselves opposing um Something that is central, not just to the Kentucky economy, but the American economy, because there was a period in time where most electricity in, uh, in the United States came from coal and came not only from coal, but coal uh, from this Appalachian region. So the odds are very stacked against the activists in, in, that, in Kentucky in a way that they aren't in, in Central Appalachia, excuse me, that they aren't in Los Angeles. Yeah.
0: Well, great. Well, I have um, one more question about uh, commonalities. So, um, so you work in a college of public health. I work in an academic medical center. Some of the people listening to us might be um, in a similar boat. I, I really think that this book has lessons for us, those of us who work in academic medicine or in colleges of public health in terms of town gown relations, Um, Can you, using some some of the examples from the history you tell, from what you learned while you were doing your research, can you um, tell us what are some things that universities can do to foster effective community involvement?
1: uh that's a great question um yeah i mean i i teach at columbia and particularly uh this is a university that let's just say does not have stellar relations with the neighbors uh, uh with its neighbors um then and also uh now uh to be quite frank um and uh the medical center which is located uh um in washington heights um um uh low-income, predominantly Latinx neighborhood. um, um, There's a lot of tension, and there's a lot of uh, bad things that the medical center has done, um, particularly with regards to real estate expansion and um, getting people either directly or indirectly kicked out of their homes and stuff. So this is something I think about uh, uh, quite a bit. But in terms of what people like us who work in these institutions and particularly might feel uneasy about, working institution that does these things, I think there are a few things that you can take from the lesson from, from, from the book. Um, And particularly I'm thinking about the Cleveland Clinic case. So the Cleveland Clinic, as Dr. Clark uh, mentioned, is located um, in, uh, on the east side of Cleveland in a still very um, under-resourced, deeply segregated neighborhood Uh, the name Cleveland Clinic makes it sound like this kind of quaint, modest institution, but it is not. It is—it's like uh, when you walk through that neighborhood for the first time and then you see the Cleveland Clinic, it's like this extraordinary glass spaceship that uh, you know, you just see the money uh and how expensive it is uh, uh, just by looking at the physical plant itself. Um, um, so I think about that example the most in terms of drawing lessons that people and other institutions like the Cleveland Clinic that are located in similar places um, can do. Um, I think the most important thing is actually just um, a certain mindset. So I find, and I found this even in my short time working at Columbia, that um, there's usually a tempest that gets people paying attention to town and ground relationships, like some kind of protest or some kind of big current in American society, as we saw in uh, 2020 and then um, people uh, start to look in their own at their own institutions and um, and they issue indictments of how how their institutions behave but then what happens is after like six months to a year that foment starts to dissipate and that is what happened in Cleveland um, so in Cleveland, in 1966, there was an uprising um, in Cleveland uh, around racism and police brutality, and um, and segregation, and under uh, um, and and lack of resources, and a lot of anger, as there was in a number of other cities uh, across the United States. And so, the Cleveland Clinic has to go on the defensive because people are starting to point fingers at well what is the cleveland clinic's responsibility now that these sorts of demands are, are are being made but then what happens is that after you know some time people forget so there's like this huge spike in interest and then it's a lull and uh and then when you go to the lull everybody sort of just forgets about the problems and i found this cycle um even even here, and so I think one lesson is you don't take your eye off the ball even when the tempest is over. So when that initial groundswell of interest um, is done, you—that's actually when you need to be most committed, <laughs> not during the period when everybody on campus is angry. But maybe the period when only twenty people are are upset. You got to keep pushing and not um, and not forget what happened. Um, um, so that's one thing. I think the second is um, to think harder about what community means. So often the solution to town and gown relations is to involve the community more, but we often use it in this sort of hazy way. And I think we need to be more precise about how we identify who is part of the who? What what community participation entails? Who is a member of the community? What kinds of organizations do we bring uh, to the table? It's often done, I think, in a kind of hasty, unthinking way. Um, the third is, I think, you you gotta have. Uh, Some respect for leadership and structure. And this is something where people might disagree with me on. But, you know, in my book, there are lots of conflicts over the community participation demand. Who is part of the community? How much control should the community have? Um, Let's say you're running like a medical institution uh, and you commit to building a community clinic in a neighborhood, like, uh, Watts or Washington Heights or something like that, and you commit to community participation. Does that mean that the community members, however you define them, should have control over every single detail uh, of the institution? You know, probably not. It would probably be unworkable after a while to just have to do a, a have a quorum on every kind of tiny little hiring detail or infrastructural improvement. And so you need some leadership and structure that still preserves the overall spirit and goal of community participation while actually being logistically reasonable. And I think yeah, there's a case in this book uh, around Watts and this kind of community health center that was built in Watts where they did that. They initially Had a lot of squabbling over what this community board's mandate was. And then they changed it more to a board of directors type of structure. And I think that's actually a good one. A board of directors that is not composed of the usual kinds of people who are on boards, but that also takes more of a bird's eye approach to running and and, and running things and giving input rather than micromanaging. And then the last and I sometimes laugh at this because it it doesn't seem that sophisticated. It's not like a super, I don't know, theoretical, conceptually rich kind of observation. But the one thing that I found hugely important when you're trying to mend town and gown relations and improve community participation and the community stake in an institution is good interpersonal skills. You just need people who are really good at diffusing conflict. So when you know, a uh, community organization um, becomes furious at some uh, administrator at the university, and uh, things get uh, very vitriolic and uh, heated. You need people to who can actually bring uh, bring sides to a table and diffuse the conflict and actually forge a path forward. And I think that's actually a really rare. Uh, characteristic in, in activists, in organizers, in, in advocates, just people who have this kind of sixth organizer sense of of how to be a good human. And there are a couple people in this book who I, I actually I actually got pretty emotional researching them because I was like, man, <laughs> like we've got this this person is so good at, <laughs> at at observing, you know, micro level human behavior and understanding um how to how to navigate it and uh, particularly the watts people um there's these two um one was a physician named rodney powell uh and the other was a community organizer they hired named jack bates and i found powell and he was kind enough to actually show me some of his papers but um um i couldn't find jack bates jim bates um i, I really wanted to find him cuz he just wrote this poetic stuff about like the structure of the watts neighborhood and all the different factions and why they sometimes didn't like each other and hey i just had an extraordinary sensitivity and again i i i say all this stuff cuz it's it's hard to put in academic terms this interpersonal skills part but you know as as somebody who's been in some Activist movements too. I've seen activists clobber each other and really end up hating each other. And you always appreciate the people who can serve as, um, you know, a temperate glue voice, a glue that that brings people together after um after those kinds of moments. So I think interpersonal skills and identifying people in academic institutions who have those skills and who can communicate credibly to community members is is huge.
0: Well, you talked a little bit about the problem of scale. Um, that I like to. That brings us to your conclusion. Um, you conclude the book by arguing that what's needed now isn't localism as it existed in the late twentieth century to people like Tip O'Neill, but something that you call, and this is a quote, a uh, multi-scalar health politics. Um, you tell. Can you tell us what that is and. How did your views on community health change while researching the book?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. How did I get to multi-scalar uh, politics? Well, you know, I entered this book with extreme skepticism about localism. Like, I'll be frank, I thought local local politics and local health community health endeavors were kind of dopey that they were permanently bedeviled by the scale problem that they fetishized um small is beautiful type projects so i was already when i uh, started uh writing this book or doing the research for it to dunk buckets of cold water on on localism i thought that would and there are these you know, really kind of books that have come out recently that really attack community level stuff where, along these lines. So I thought I was going to do the same. And then I started to actually find um, that I admired a lot of these projects a lot more. As I said, I got actually pretty emotional reading about the the Watts pr- project and, and also some of the achievements that um, are still standing. You know, that Watts Community Health Center is still standing today. Gouverneur is still standing. Some of the reforms that uh, were forced on a parochial institution like the Cleveland Clinic still exist in some form uh, or or the other. So these were not as inconsequential as um, I thought. But I think the most important thing to me was I then asked the question, well, if localism is as ineffective as you seem to think, Merlin, then why do so many people still gravitate towards it? And I think they gravitate towards it because look at the health sector. It is one of the most still hierarchical exclusionary sectors there is. Um, There's just not a lot of levers people can pull besides local. You know, like are you really gonna get an audience with um some health policy wonk in uh DC who works uh in those kinds of corridors? Maybe, but it's a lot harder than just sort of um trying an endeavor out in in your own neighborhood. So I, I think you know, I started to become much more sympathetic to it because I realized that um the local is the dimension where people who otherwise have no access to things that control their lives might be able to make some Um, kind of entry point. But I also think you got to be sober and honest about, again, the scale problem and how effective these local projects can be, um, especially in our climate now. So you and I, our generation, has been permanently living in like an austerity regime. Like every big city that I've lived in is always going broke. Like every year there is like a budget crisis in New York City. And you look at the social services or just public services more broadly, you can see they're kind of uh, teetering. And when you look at that and you look at this kind of new political economy that started to merge in the 1980s of you know a lot of austerity, a lot of decline in um, in the robustness of, of public services, it does make, make You ask, well, okay, you've made a one great pro- local project, but you know, it's really a minor dent in this new regime. And so, I think we need to be honest about what that new regime and context looks like. And that's, that's what I mean by multi it's both continuing these local endeavors, but also we got to keep our eye on the, the bigger context in which these local endeavors exist, and that's often on state, federal, and even global level. And I I thought about this even more with the two big crises of our, two of the biggest crises of our time, which is the climate change crisis and the COVID crisis. Um, with with climate, you can have one city like Seattle that has super forward carbon neutral policies, but it's going to take more than one city or even a 100 cities to do this. So this is a global thing. If one nation, particularly a very large nation, decides to be a profligate, uh, carbon non neutral <laughs> nation, um, it's really not gonna, it's really not gonna matter in the uh, grand scheme of things, um, how, how these, you know, like, individual, here and there, uh, successful municipalities um, are, are handling uh, a climate. Um, the climate bill is sort of interesting, this latest one that passed, because it's it's an example of muscular federal action, but a lot of that money is actually going to go to local projects. So in some ways, um, that is kind of a multi-scalar uh, uh, politics being enacted. I think. Um, I thought COVID was another very sobering thing for me. Like we all know that more at the beginning of the pandemic than the end of the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic, um, there were lots of cities and states and even countries that were doing really well. Um, In the book, I briefly mentioned Kerala State in India, which kind of had all the public health measures you wish the United States had. But then all of a sudden, like, you know, more deep into the pandemic, the Kerala COVID rates uh, skyrocketed. And question was, was why? And it was because of migrant workers that came through, um, that came through Kerala. And it was an example how, you know, our world is very interconnected, so that even if you have a stellar public health program in one place, inevitably, there's going to be a porousness with the rest of the world. So you can't just think about it in a one region sense. It's got to be a multi-region sense. And and so that's what I mean about multi, multi-scalar projects and multi-scalar health politics. And um, I think if it sounds abstract and kind of hard, it's because it is. And I think if people knew the magic formula beyond that, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation we are in now. So I, I mean it as a heuristic to kind of, start a conversation um, more than anything.
0: Well, it's very well said. Um, Okay. And Merlin, we have taken up a lot of your time. And um, this brings me to our traditional final question here on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on next? What's next for you? Yeah, I'm
1: kind of working on three things. So I, I sort of reactivated that health activism project that I talked about. Uh, earlier, um, I'm in this weird position now where I am now older than any of the people I'm writing about in my book were at the time they were doing the things I talked about. And I, I just mentioned that because I think I have a little bit more political maturity to write something like that. So I've been working on this book about medical student. Um, Um, health activism in the 1960s and 70s, and particularly focused on something we talked about, which is town and gown relations and the way these medical students forced that issue, but also the limits of some of their activism. But um, I've also been working on kind of a couple things that are sort of new for me in terms of the genre. Um, One is not so much a history book, it has some history in it, but it's a, it's a synthetic book on what is often called what are often called social determinants of health, that is non-biological, non-medical influences um, on health. And it's trying to take stock of this literature that looks at the impact of income, education level, race, um, um, gender, uh, a host of other things on on, on health and, and what that liter- what that body of work, tells us but perhaps what it also what it also misses it's mostly like a couple generations of epidemiological quantitative work and um i thought it might be interesting to look at it from the vantage point of a historian um so there's one book um and the other is to look at uh the history of public health again, uh, more of a synthesis of the literature than the sort of research I did for all health politics was local, but um, it's kind of using COVID as a jumping point to reconsider a lot of themes in the history uh, of public health. So you know, I definitely did not. Um, it comes out of this uh, thing I did about uh, COVID and and the Trump presidency. Uh, this little chapter that I wrote um, for 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 a book and. And then I'm um, sort of now expanding, but I didn't want to I didn't want to just write another COVID book because I think like a thousand of them are coming out. So I'm uh, not not interested, but I do think COVID is an interesting entry point into a lot of um, issues in the history of public health, as well as a way to rethink a lot of things in public health. Uh, one thing I'm rethinking just to give an example is. um I don't know if you do this, Dr. Clark, but I used to do this in my history of public health classes where I basically go in and I'd say all right until like maybe the mid 20th century at the latest there was lots of infectious disease and then the infectious disease fell and we're not going to worry about that anymore and it's it's now all chronic chronic
0: disease. disease
1: yeah 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 so this COVID has profoundly changed how i think about that i threw those lectures out i mean it was already problematic because of hiv aids but um, there's also a lot of infectious disease that we kind of just sh- shunted aside with that narrative. So kind of using COVID to, as, a, as a lens, weirdly, to think through the history of public health and, and rethink it. Yeah.
0: Well, those are three great projects. And I hope you'll consider coming back to, to talk to us once, once they're um, written and published and out in the world.
1: Oh awesome well thank you so much uh this was a lot of fun